Good Morning Britain to Countryfile, TV presenter and journalist Sean Fletcher has entertained viewers from daytime right through to primetime TV. I caught up with him by the side of a very blustery Thames in southwest London and we settled down to talk about his son, Reuben, who was diagnosed and later hospitalised with OCD and the impact not only on Reuben, but also on Sean, Sean's work, as well as the family as a whole. As ever, we are working with the mental health charity Mind on this series. Suggest to pre-warn, this conversation features topics that include supporting someone with OCD, symptoms and treatment for OCD, as well as discussions about stigma around the disorder. Just to say, we've also teamed up with Go Outdoors for this podcast, and you'll hear more about their brilliant Hats On For Mind campaign from me later on. So listen with care, and if you need some support, particularly about OCD, Mind is always available on mind.org.uk forward slash OCD. Hope you enjoy. Sean, welcome to Outdoors and Mind. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's great to be here. We were in a lovely spot by the, right by the Thames. This is your neck of the woods, is it? Yeah, so I, this is sort of my go-to walk with my wife. Um, basically, every weekend we, we come down here and um, there's a loop. You see, you can walk up to Barnes Railway Bridge and then there's Hammersmith Bridge over there and we're, you sort of do it in an hour and 20 minutes. And it just, I know we're in London and we're actually fairly central, aren't we? But it just feels like you're in the middle of nowhere, particularly on the other side where there's trees over there. Um, and it just, you just sort of come out here and take a deep breath and walk for an hour and a half. And it, it, I, you just feel refreshed. I, that's what my wife and I feel. So it's sort of, that's why we just keep coming back here. You feel, feel particularly refreshed today because it's absolutely Baltic. <laughs> I'm woefully un, un, underdressed are, for today. I know. <laughs> so I, I, 20 minutes ago, half an hour ago, it was sunshine. It was beautiful. I mean, I, I sort of have visions of us sitting here and the sun warming our face or sun on the back. You know, you know, it's a dream, particularly in November, because those days are bonuses, aren't they? Where you, you don't expect the sun to shine and it's shining and you think, wow, this is wonderful. And then we got out here. And he's freezing. <laughs> and I've got this cold wind on my back now. So, yeah, I know how you feel. Um, now, we're here today to talk about your son, called, who's called Ruben, um, who's got OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. And we've covered loads of themes in this podcast so far, um, anxiety, depression, body dysmorphia. But um, OCD is probably one of the most misunderstood um, conditions, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And it's trivialized and it's joked about and it's sort of not understood. I mean, you even hear people say, oh, I wish I had OCD, then I'd be, I'd be able to clean my house. And um, people say, oh, he's a bit OCD as a joke. Uh, I, prob- I probably maybe said something like that as well when I was younger. And then suddenly um, my son, this is a sort of, so he's 20 now. This is when he was about 13, 12. Um, he became quite ill um, and it really made me realize that, you know, a mental health issue, a serious mental health issue is as debilitating as a serious physical disability. You know, he was unable to get out of bed. He was unable to go to school. I mean, at times he was unable to feed himself, brush his teeth. And, you know, it was really basic things because, because the OCD was telling him that he, you know, he wouldn't be able to, you know, it, it, he, could, he shouldn't do those things or something bad would happen. Um, and yeah, so OCD is, is a series of, it's basically um, obsessions and compulsions. So you obsess about something. That's just say, for example, you um, you believe your kitchen is full of germs. So the work kitchen worktop is full of germs. It's clean, but you something in your mind is telling you there's something malfunctioning in your mind, which is the OCD telling you that kitchen top worktop is dirty. And you, if you prepare food on it, it's gonna you know you're gonna die of the germs. So you bleach it. And you know you and I would bleach you if we haven't got OCD, and, and we know it's clean. Then we're 100% sure it's clean. But someone with OCD will be thinking it going around in their head like a washing machine. No, but it's dirty, and it's really they're really bad germs. So you, someone with OCD might bleach it 
so many times that the bleach is burning off the skin on their hands, you know, or they'll have, whatever they're doing, they'll do it so many times that it's actually becoming harmful or it stops them doing things. So for example, I'm, I'm a bit of a checker. So I leave the house and I think, oh, did I lock the door before I get on the train? Um, and if I'm just around the corner, I might, you know, I used to go back and check, I've locked the door. But if you've got OCD, you'll do that a hundred times and you'll never get to work. So it becomes a disability, it becomes debilitating. Um, and so that was the situation. My son didn't go to school for a year. Um, so this is year nine, I think, year nine. Um, he was in hospital for six months. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, I, mean, I suppose the, the thing that really struck me, firstly, was how debilitating a mental health issue can be, but also, and this is, I think this is crucial, because there's not much talked about this, is how, how much of a struggle it is for the parents when the child is struggling with a mental health issue. But that's not just parents, carers, anyone who's struggling with mental illness, there will be loads of people around them who are affected and affected at different degrees. But if you're a parent, you, you know, you care, you're a parent, you know how you care about your child, probably more than yourself, because you sort of think I can, I can take the rough and tumble of life, but your child, a small child, you're, you're just really worried about. And so that really affects you. And so I don't struggle with mental health issues, but I, I was struggling. I was really finding it very difficult because um, it basically, it was almost like the OCD was tearing our family apart. It was, I, I, mean, I often talk about it, it's almost like there was a little gremlin sitting on the mantelpiece, making arguments start, just, you know, tearing us apart, making, us, making things difficult. Um, and that was the OCD. So yeah, that's sort of explaining what OCD is and how it, how it literally almost tore our family apart. And there are loads, what I noticed is I went, I started talking about this publicly, and there are loads of families in the same situation with all sorts of mental health issues, but particularly OCD, who are struggling. Take me back, take me back right to the beginning. Um, what were the first signs of, of, of OCD with regards to Ruben? Yeah, I, I sort of say this with a warning note because there'll be people listening who'll go, oh my gosh, my son or daughter's this, so they must have OCD, you know you need to get a diagnosis to be sure of these things. But for us, I mean, Ruben was always a little bit anxious as a child. And so he got to the end of primary school, so year six, what's that, year eight, 10, 11. And he was sort of quite anxious. And I remember going to, um, so he went to, um, so my, my wife's Welsh, Welsh speaking. I've learned Welsh. Uh, my kids went to Welsh schools and my son went to the Welsh primary school in London. And we, the, they, go back to the big Welsh festival, arts festival called the Eisteddfod and perform. And so he was performing on stage. And he's a, he's a really good singer. And he got to the, just before he was just about to go on stage. And he, he just sort of had a bit of a meltdown. He couldn't do it and he was really anxious. And he was sort of starting to sort of say, oh, wow, you're, you're really struggling with anxiety. And then he went to secondary school and there were times when he was really anxious and obviously really, you know, I, you know, lots of kids struggle yeah. with these things and, you know, going to secondary school is, a, is an anxious and worrying time. But he seemed to be a little bit more and he was avoiding certain things. And of course, now I know what OCD is. I know all sorts of stuff was going on in his mind, but he was trying to deflect from that and not show that. And that, that's often what is happening, that there's, there's a, it's almost like there's a, a battlefield going on in, in your child's head and all you can see is the eyes and you can just sort of see that they're not they're not connected they're struggling but you don't it's really hard that's what's hard as a parent and did you ask him did you ask him what was, what was yeah i mean on? it went on and on you know but it you, you know he's just you know he's not going to say i think he just doesn't know he doesn't know it's ocd he just knows that there's something not right 
until then it became he was unable to do certain things like he didn't want to go to school and he couldn't get out of bed and he was you know really quite serious stuff so we um we managed to you know you go to the gp and the gp then refers you to cams the child and adolescent mental health services and then you this weight invariably i'm sure there'll be people listening to this who will be very familiar with it you know there's a depending where you are i mean we had a I think a month, a month and a half wait. And you know, you think your child is really struggling. If you've broken your leg, would you wait? Would you wait that long? You know, you'd go to a and &E and get it sorted straight away. And I gather that the waiting lists are even longer. So that was just to get the first assessment. And they said, well, we think he's got OCD, but there's a wait, there's another month's wait until he gets seen. So, you know, you're waiting suddenly two months. And when all this time, was he, was he gradually getting worse and well, worse? Yeah, I mean, I suppose he sort of stayed bad all, all along, you know, really struggling. Um, you know, so it's hard to get him to go to school. Um, and then, and then it, you know, it's sort of impossible to get him to go to school. Um, yeah. all this, well, while all this was happening, what impact was it having on, on you and, and your wife and, and the family as a whole? So, yeah, I mean, you can imagine, firstly, you're worried. I think you, you're starting at a point where you're just worried. You wake up and you know when there's a worry or concern, you wake up, maybe even you haven't thought about it and you haven't dreamt, dreamt about it, you wake up and then there's that moment where you don't think about it and then you think about it and you wake up and you think, oh, I've got this big worry about my child not being well. And then you, you know, you have to deal with it. And we both work, we both work. So, you know, someone might have to be off work or, you know, you're having to juggle, you can get family members in to help. So there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that, if your child was well, that you're just not having to deal with. But you just, I think you just, it's just the worry. It's just a sort of horrible, it feels like a sort of something at the bottom of your tummy just making you have butterflies constantly and worry and all, in a way that I wouldn't worry about myself. No. And all the same, at the same time, you're obviously trying to, just trying to run a house. You're trying to probably yeah. pretend that everything is normal for the sake of your other daughter, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. The, the other children, in all these families where this is happening, when one child is struggling, the other children invariably get, you know, are gonna get the effects of it. So you, yeah, you do as a parent have to juggle that as well without being completely sucked into this whole battle against the mental illness with one child to make that effect on the other. I mean, in fact, it's, so I suppose if you think of an analogy, it's almost like our son was going down the plug hole of mental illness, getting started, and, it, and we were all f coming to going down it as well. And the, the one thing I, always, I felt quite strongly when things got a lot better was that as a carer or a parent, you're no, you're no good if your mental health goes downhill. You know, you're no good to anyone. So you, you do need to look after your own mental health. So, I mean, that's one of the, these places that we used to come. So we used to, even if it was individually, we were, I was running quite a lot of the time. I've got an injury at the moment, so I'm not running, but I'd run quite a lot down here. So I'd go alone and my wife might be at home and we had, you'd become a bit of a tag team. So one of you's out running, the other one is in at home and vice versa. But it, it's really crucial to have that time to yourself, looking after yourself. And, really crucial just to look after yourself because if you go down that plug hole of mental illness, you're, you're no good to your child and there's two people struggling. So, um, Did yeah. you ever feel yourself going down that plug hole? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, thank goodness I don't naturally struggle with mental illness. So, yeah, I mean, if I did, if I, did, if I was susceptible to something, I think I'd probably, yeah, might, you know, that's when it would have come out. I, no. I, I don't struggle, but I was, I was really struggling. Yeah, I was, I was really struggling. So at the time, 
So I started on Good Morning Britain, so doing breakfast television in 2014. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever done earlies and shifts or night work or whatever. Quite brutal, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's really hard. You yeah. know, it's really hard. It's, it's sort of, you're just tired all the time. And I think you can deal with problems. A bit like when you have a newborn, you know, you can deal with problems when you have sleep. But when you don't have sleep, the smallest things become big. And bear in mind, we're going through this massive thing in our family. And at the time, yeah, it was, you know, breakfast telly as well is the complete opposite. You have to go on and smile and, you know, everything's great. And no one wants to switch the telly on and have a miserable news presenter, you know, breakfast program. So I saw them almost living these double lives. You know, you're sort of home, just keeping your head above water, my wife and I. And then I'm then getting up at 3.30 in the morning, four in the morning and going into work and I'm, yeah, I mean, basically put on a mask, which is... Did it affect your work? Yeah, yeah, I, it, it did, yeah. I, I mean, I, I look back and I'm... I, th I think I'm a much better presenter now. Now I don't have this, you know, this struggle that we, we had at home. Yeah, but at the time, you just, you're just sort of firefighting, aren't you, with these situations? You're just sort of fighting and trying to... Tr just trying to keep your head above water. I mean, you do that as an individual, but I think as a parent, you really feel that protective nature. So I, yeah, it really, it really affected me, yeah. Did, did you talk to your colleagues on GMB about it? Not really, no, no. Did they know, did they know something was, well, was Eventually, up? yeah, when I started talking about it. So that was so, quite a while later, so wasn't it? For a long time, I just kept it to myself. And I think, I mean, this is, this is the thing. I, I didn't really have much of an experience of mental illness. But I'd heard, and I actually remember then, you know, five, six, well, that's seven, eight years ago, that where we were with the conversation about mental illness was so different to where we are now. And I remember, but I remember people talking about, oh yeah, there's a mental health stigma, people don't want to talk about it. I remember thinking, yeah, 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 but it's not, it's not my business. And suddenly I'm thrown into this mental health battle with my family, trying to keep it afloat. And I could see exactly the stigma. I mean, I, I didn't want to talk about it. I, I literally didn't tell anyone for a long, long time because I was really, you're sort of embarrassed. And I mean, I, OCD is, is, is quite weird. It, it you know, makes you do weird things and it makes you, you know, they're challenging things that the, thought, the thoughts that people are having and, you know, with OCD it might be extreme violent thoughts or sexual thoughts or embarrassing things that my son didn't want to talk about. But then when you start finding out you don't want to talk about and you don't, you don't really want to, admit that your child has an illness and if he had a broken leg I'd be bragging about it oh he broke his leg playing football or whatever you know I'd be talking about it in a completely different way and that, and that is the physical compared to mental health stigma the, the way we talk about physical health actually there's no problem with it but I, I so go, trying to explain in a long long-winded way I, I had no experience of mental illness I didn't know any all the conversations but I still felt the stigma that we have in society. I immediately just clicked into mode. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it. And I didn't for a long time. So yeah, I, did, I didn't, probably didn't feel a television studio maybe was a safe space, but I didn't think, I, actually to be fair, I didn't feel anywhere was a safe space to talk about it, but definitely television. And I, I've changed, I actually changed. I'm a lot more honest as a person and I'll accept work and turn down work if I don't think it's good for me. But then, you know, I was just, I was just doing anything to stay afloat and put on an act and... It sounds exhausting. Yeah, 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 it, totally, to totally exhausting. Well, the work was exhausting, but that, that the act, the mask, 
was, yeah, really exhausting. I suppose, I suppose that's the message, really, yeah, that I don't think it's really talked about much. Parents and carers struggle just as much, well, not just as much as, they struggle, they struggle in a different way. And if you're a parent, it's that worry, that sort of immense worry that you get. Um, I've, I've said to my kids at you know, various stages in their lives when something happens and they go, oh, thanks for that, or, you know, really good that you did that, whatever. And I say, you, you wait till you have kids, you'll, you'll do the same. Because you do, you sort of, it changes, it sort of, you ha have that caring mode from obviously when they're a baby, when they can't do anything. But even when they're older, you care about them in a way that, you know, I, I care about my wife in a different way because I know she's a lot more robust and can sort of deal with stuff. But with a child, it's sort of a little bit different. And so parents and carers, I think, really struggle. And there's not a lot out there for them. Uh, there's, not, there's not a lot out there for people who are struggling with mental illness and their waiting lists are huge. So yeah, going, going back to the journey, we, we were in CAMS in the system and, and his OCD was, Ruben's OCD was too strong really to, like, I still sort of couldn't deal with it. So we got a referral to the Maudsley Hospital, which is one of the, nation, the national OCD centre. But we had to wait nine months for, from when he first was diagnosed to getting in there. I mean, nine, nine months, that's almost a year. And I, ga I, I gather the waiting lists are even longer now. Because more children are struggling with all sorts of mental health issues. And I, just, I, I mean, you'll go back to that you know, comparison. If you had a broken leg and you waited nine months, it would be headline news in all the papers, wouldn't it? But with mental illness, we sort of, well, that's sort of how it is. I mean, it shouldn't be that way. And so I, yeah, we, we waited. What, what were those nine months like? Must be Well, eventually months. he ended up in hospital. So that's when he, then he was in hospital for six months. So that's, I suppose, in, sh in short, that tells you what, we couldn't cope. That tells you, that, that answers your question. We just couldn't cope. Um, and I, and I, I mean, it's probably for another podcast, but the conditions in the hospital were absolutely atrocious. It was awful. I mean, you know. What did, uh, you, what did you see? Well, no, it's, 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 it's like, it's just the sort of the attitude of um, mental hospitals for children is throw them all in together. And I, actually, maybe as someone who's struggling with OCD doesn't want to see, it's probably not best for them to be seeing someone who's kicking off about something else because they've got some other issue. But I, it sort of made me think, oh, gosh, not only are we waiting nine months, that's an issue for all f families that are, who's got children who have mental illnesses. It's um, when, if you end up in a hospital, um, I just, I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're tough places because... There are ill children. So it, it was a really challenging time, but that was the only way we could get, we could get the treatment. You know, good treatment with a good OCD specialist was to be in hospital. And then when he came out of hospital, he then ended up going to the Maudsley Hospital and they changed their lives. You know, the treatment actually for OCD is quite straightforward. If you have trained people, so a trained OCD therapist, um, CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy and some medication, to help sort of bring the noise down of the OCD. 20 sessions weekly of CBT. And he started to turn around. I mean, he's like, my gosh, it, if, if, it, if we'd had this a year or nine months before, we could have not had to have gone through any of this stuff. And I, I mean, I say this in our example, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of families who are literally going through this right now, but they're having to wait. They have to wait for that right level of care. And many of them don't get to go to the, um, to the Maudsley Hospital. We live in London, so we were, and, we, and, and the other thing was, we were in our local CAMS. You know, my wife and I educated, we looked up what rights we have and what we could do. And we knew that we, once he'd been through a set of the sort of treatment of like whatever, 20 weeks, 14 weeks, if it didn't work, we could self-refer. But that, 
that that CAMS had never self-referred. So they didn't know how it worked. So we worked it all out ourselves and self-referred and they you know, got a letter from them, say, yes, he's struggling with OCD. And then we got the referral. And all I could think of was, what if I was, I lived in Newcastle, you know, a long way away, from, you know, wouldn't be able to visit weekly to the Maudsley Hospital in London. Um, and I was a, a single parent with five kids and one of them had OCD. That child would not have the same access that my child had because we, we live in London. We live near the hospital. We were able to get to the hospital every week. And so it's in the Maudsley Hospital, not the hospital that he was in as an inpatient. And um, I just thought, wow, that, that's, there will be lots of children who are struggling. And some of them will have it really badly like Ruben did. That's, I mean, that's, that's heartbreaking. And they won't have people who are, like, I suppose we, my wife and I fought, fought his corner and we got him the right level of treatment. But that's because we did a lot of homework and we pushed. And I, it shouldn't have to be that way. No. It shouldn't have to be that way. This podcast is brought to you as part of the Hats On For Mind campaign, in which Sean is an ambassador. He designed his own hat and flask, which you can purchase online and in-store at Go Outdoors, Blacks, Millets, Nailers and Fishing Republic. Not only that, but 100% of profits from the campaign will go to mind. You mentioned earlier about not being able to talk to other people about, about Ruben's condition. Um, and obviously you're talking about it publicly now. But what was it like talking to friends and family for the first time about what was going on with Ruben. Yeah. Um, Can you remember those conversations? Yeah. So, I mean, people in work. I mean, what, what's hard when you're going through that is you've, you might have gone through that for two or three years, really struggling. And there's not really an understanding of what OCD is. It's actually quite hard to explain. So I explained it with, like, germs on a kitchen table. But it could be something really complex. Like, so, I, you know, the, there's... Um, you know, I've heard of different, all sorts of things, like um, um, you, someone orders a pizza, the pizza man comes around and delivers the pizza, take the pizza, pay the money, they go, and then suddenly the OCD is telling them, oh, you did, so, you did something bad to the pizza man, you, you sexually abused him or her or whatever. And before you know it, that's gone around in your head so much that you think you're going to, the police are going to come around and you're worried about it. That's how powerful OCD is. So you think of all, you know, all the things that could be. And I'm trying to explain it in a couple of sentences to a friend or family. It's actually quite hard. It's really hard. So, and you've lived it for three years. So you're trying to explain, this is what I've been through for three years. You can't, you can't do it justice. You're trying to explain what OCD is. It's really hard. The germs analogy you know, story is good. It's the best way of doing it. But actually it, it could be anything. It could be all sorts of things. Um, and... I don't know, I suppose, I sp I sp I've learned now being vulnerable is a, is a strength, but you felt so vulnerable and so exposed. You're telling people, um, I remember telling work. Although what I did is I actually start, I talked about it in another podcast. I did a panorama program looking at child and adolescent mental health services and how long we'd waited. And then people started to come to me. I didn't sort of go to people and say, hey, I, my son's really ill and, you know, we're really struggling. It's sort of, that's probably the stigma. I didn't really talk about it. And then people saw it on telling them, oh my gosh, I can't believe you've been through this. What? I mean, I saw the program and I heard the podcast and that's outrageous. And then they would tell friends who would listen to it. And so people would come to me and I suppose there's an element of like, oh my gosh, I've got to have that conversation again. And you're having that conversation almost for the benefit of them, not for you. You don't really want to relive it. So um, you asked me what, what was it like in those conversations. So I felt vulnerable, I felt exposed, 
um, when we put the programs out that, you know, the podcast and the Panorama program, I felt, I felt really almost like I sort of, it's almost like I'm jumping off here into the water. Am I going to hit the water or is, some, is something going to, is there a ledge down there? Am I, I can't see it now, but I'm jumping off. Is there, am I going to land on something before the water? Almost, it just felt like I was in free fall and I wasn't sure whether I was going to fly or I was going to be held or I was just literally going to fall. I actually remember doing, um, doing a panorama program about child and adolescent mental health services. It was obviously on the BBC, so I went up to BBC Breakfast and I talked about it. And I just felt like I was on the edge of tears all, all the time. I'm on air and I do, you know, I speak on air all the time. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to cry. You know, it's really hard. And then got, did, because obviously it's early morning, got on the train back to London. I'm coming back to London. And I just felt tonight the program's going out. Tonight a lot of people are going to be hearing about our story. And I felt exactly that. I felt like I jumped off a cliff. And I wasn't quite sure whether there was a ledge but I'd done it now. There's no, literally no going back. We've made the program. And so, yeah, yeah, all, the conversations, the, the revealing it in programs, it was all just pretty scary, pretty scary. You don't know whether you're going to be judged. I mean, that's probably part of the stigma. You don't want to talk about your child because you, you don't know whether you're going to be judged, your child's going to be judged, whether you're going to be judged, you're going to be judged for bringing up a child in a bad way, all those things. So yeah, sorry, I think I'm not really answering the question. I'm just throwing lots of thoughts at you, but that's sort of, they're, they're, all, they're all pretty scary, basically. Wherever I went, it was scary. Obviously, you, you're, you're married, you, you and your wife are going through this together. Um, was, there, was that quite tough at times for your yeah. marriage? Yeah, yeah, of course. It, it puts pressure on the family, it puts pressure on the marriage. Because I, I said earlier that you, you're basically a tag team. So one of you's looking after your child, and the other one's out and vice versa. And, Gradually, you know, of course, that, that puts pressure on any, any marriage, any partnership. But then, but then, you know, you get through it. And we look back on that time. And I suppose this is a message to people who are where we were. I think what, what we did along the way was we met people who were at the end of this. You know, you almost go into a tunnel. And we met people who were at the end of the tunnel and were saying, it's going to be all right, don't worry, you can get through this. And other people who were literally just going into the tunnel, struggling. And we were in this dark place. And actually sharing where your stories with other people who are further down the path or behind you is really important. We did a family therapy thing where we met at the Maudsley Hospital. Where we met other, other families oh, really? who were in the same situation, yeah. but further down the path or behind, further back. And, we, and that was one of the best things we ever did. The message I would say to people is, I'm, I'm out of the tunnel now. And if you're in that tunnel, you've got this. You, you know, literally, seriously, that there are lots of ways out of it. There are loads of hurdles. There are loads of struggles. One of them is the waiting list. You know, you might really be hard to get a diagnosis or to get um, treatment for your child or for you or whoever it is. But you, there, there's always a way out. There is a way and there is a sort of light at the end of the tunnel. And, we, and I, you know, I and loads of other families are testament to that. Can you remember the first time you saw those sort of fresh shoots come up where you realised that Ruben is on the road to recovery? So, so he missed year nine, basically, of school, and then a year, or maybe he missed year 10. What's, what GCSE year is, GCSE year is year 11. So he missed year 10. So he, he and he, he started to miss quite a bit of the beginning of year 11. I think it was that way around. And, you know, he's miles behind in his GCSEs. So I ended up taking, taking off quite a lot of time from work 
and I basically did revise did the GCSEs with it, like revised a lot, and we basically revised loads. So from January all the way to the exams, I was literally revising with him, and he was obviously getting a lot better and was able to take on all this stuff. And you know, G GCSEs, I tried I tried it with A levels, and I was totally out of my depth. But GCSEs, um, you know, as an adult. You, you can sort of look at the revision books and go, right, okay, I get this, or I vaguely remember this. So I literally did a lot of work. I mean, I don't speak Spanish, but I did sort of Spanish GCC with him, revising. And he needed to get certain GCCs to stay in the sixth form for his school. It's a state school, but it seems to have, you know, if you don't get certain grades, you, you know, you wouldn't get into the sixth form. And he needed to get a certain amount of GCCs. And so I just basically spent a lot of time with him. It was a great bonding time, actually. And I'm really close with my son now because of that, partly because of that. Um, but I could see then, I was, we were talking about stuff, and we are going through, okay, testing you, testing you, testing you, because in GCSEs, a lot of it is you just learning stuff. And I could see he was getting better. And um, I remember getting the GCSEs that day was just the most, I mean, it was better than my GCSEs <laughs> at my levels, it was great. Seeing him get just enough GCSEs and get the grades to get through to the sixth form, to stay on at the same school with the friends he'd made. Oh, what a relief. Um, it was amazing, yeah, yeah, and I spent a lot of time yeah. and a lot of time off work doing that. And actually, another point to make is just reminding me that his friends were amazing. Um, so he, when he was in hospital, he'd go in hospital during the week and come home at the weekend. We managed to, there's a lot of kids, most kids just stay in, but we, we, you know, we lived sort of 45 minutes from the hospital and we thought it was really important that he would come home for the weekends. And so we were able to do that. And he would come home and his friends would, you know, give him a call and say, um, do you want to play football? Go and play football. You know, as long as, I mean, I, I sort of noticed it with boys that age, as long as you can play in goal and just stand there, <laughs> you might not do anything, you might not be any good, but as long as you can li literally kick a ball or stand in goal, you're sort of included and they included him and I don't, they, they didn't, you know, maybe the times when he wasn't very well, but I thought, you know, and they're still his friends to this day. Um, really I do, I remember thinking really loyal friends, really good friends. That's really that's, interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of kids can be quite cruel, they can be quite ignorant about these sort of conditions, but yeah. they sort of rallied around him. Yeah, I, I yeah, I sort of, I mean, it's, it almost wasn't, I didn't rally around him, maybe that's too strong. They just sort of didn't care as long as he could play on the PlayStation and play football, <laughs> you know, so he connected up with them on the PlayStation and he could play, he was quite good at whatever, FIFA. So he, um, yeah, no, he just sort of, he sort of stayed connected. So then when he went back to school, he had some friends. So I, that was a real relief. And I know that's not the case for all, all families, you know, children who struggle with mental health issues. You know, not always the easiest kids, I suppose, in the playground or whatever, and kids shun them, and that makes the mental health issue worse. So, um, but we, yeah, we were lucky there. So yeah, got through the GCSEs. I realized then that he was actually, he was much cleverer than I was at school. I mean, I, I was nowhere near as clever as him. And he did maths, which I did at A-level, but he did better than me. He did physics and biology. Sorry, chemistry and biology, maths, chemistry and biology. You know, and I remember looking at some of the A-level stuff, thinking, my gosh, this is, he's much cleverer than me. But he has a mental illness, and that's, that holds him back. And that, that's sort of the tragic thing, that he's, um, you know, that during his school years, the mental illness really held him back. But now he has the tools to deal with the OCD. He's in a much better place. So I, um, um, I remember someone telling me when he was really ill, well, it's, it's just as well, it's good you've got it early. And I remember thinking that was a really insensitive thing to say, you know, we're, we're, we're just struggling here as a family. We're keeping our head above water. And I'm not sure, how, I'm not sure we're gonna be able to keep it up, our head above water for that long. And someone's saying, oh, but it's, it's actually quite good. You've got the diagnosis. But now I see, I see why that 
really matters because when you're learning to be an adult and learning to be a person as a, as a child, if you're going through therapy then, you have the tools to then sort of imprint that in the fabric of who you are rather than struggling through your life and getting into your 30s and thinking, why have I struggled all my life? Why am I drinking loads or why am I taking drugs as a you know, self-medication? And then thinking, getting a diagnosis of OCD and then having to rework your brain when you've already set it in stone and actually probably quite hard to you know, teach an old, trick, an old dog new tricks. But a young dog can learn those, those tools to deal with the mental health issues. So I, yeah, I remember that being quite important. Um, it, must, it, must be, it must be so heartwarming, the fact that he got his GCSEs and then obviously he got his A-levels, got his university offer. I mean, these, these moments, he must have thought in the darkest times, they would never, ever appear. Yeah, I think, I think what probably all parents do is you have your child and you think, oh, yeah, so I have a vision for them. I sort of see where they're going to be on the horizon. And when a, when a mental health issue strikes, and it, you know, it's serious and it's long term, that you just see that horizon disappearing and there's a cloud that comes over it and, and you, you know, all those dreams. And you probably shouldn't do that because you probably put loads of pressure on your kids. But we all do as parents, don't we? And you just see all of that crumbling because you think, oh, he's never going to be able to do that and this and whatever. And you sort of reassess, oh, well, he's not going to do GCSE, so he's going to do this. And, I, and the, I, the message I'd have to anybody who's in that situation, it doesn't matter just as long as your child is happy. And, you know, you just need to get them better. So we, we were worrying about GCSEs. He wasn't at school and we're thinking, how on earth is he going to do them? Just don't worry about that stuff. Just get them better. Um, but then when you do, whether it's GCSEs, whatever it is, whether it's just them being happy, those milestones are... I don't know, there's just, ugh, it's extra special because you think, I, never, I, I had those on the horizon, then they wiped off, and now they're back on, and I really cherish them. So yeah, getting the GCSEs, we just were like, just so thankful, and then the A-levels, and then going to university. And that, like I say, he's much cleverer than me, so now he's in a better place. He's actually storming ahead and went in a way that I never did. Yeah. And, and seeing him off to university, what was that moment like? Quite, quite nerve-wracking, quite emotional? Yeah, it was really emotional, because I suppose it was all those landmarks are... You, you reflect, so, you know, my wife and I drove up to the university, dropped him off, and you're on the, on the car back, you just talk about, wow, where, where we've come, where he's come, how far he's been, and the, the depths that we were at. And it's, you know, you sort of, it's emotional. I'm quite an emotional person, so I sort of I talk about these things, or I think about these things. I get, I get really sad, but it's sort of, you know, now I suppose in some ways it's tears of joy because you see where he's got to, but, it, you know, he's always got OCD, so he's always susceptible to at times of stress to be struggling with it. But um, yeah, from where we were, it's almost like a, a slow clock tick, oh, a clock ticking. You don't see the, any of the hands moving. You don't notice them moving, but you look back over time, like a year or five years later, and you think, wow, look where we've come. It's amazing. So yeah, yeah, I, um, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm just happy. Yeah, you, sort of, you, start, you change things and you wake up every day and you think, ah, oh, phew, that, yeah, where we were, is, that was awful. And I'm just thankful that we're here every day. Lots of things, that, lots of things that, difficult things that you have in life. It makes you cherish the things you have, like, you know, this place. As the sun comes out, I mean, can you imagine? Finally. Are we going to get warm? <laughs> yeah, but you really cherish that. You cherish a sunny day and you cherish a walk around here and you cherish, you know, I do a bit of music with my son. I, I, I just cherish it. I go to the football with my son. Drive, the drive to the football, we have an hour, we have a chat, we listen to music. We might play him an old album from when I was a kid and we chat about it. 
see the football, we lose or we win, whatever, and we drive back. I just cherish that time, maybe in a way that I never would have done if he'd had been not, not ill in, a, in, a previous, in the previous years. I just really, I really value it. I sort of feel like when we got to, my, myself personally, but as a family, we were really vulnerable and we were really struggling. But that means now we're much stronger and we are, we value so much more, just the little things a lot more. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking idealistically, you know, I go through life and I ignore loads of things, but there are times when I sit back and think, wow, I really cherish that. And you mentioned earlier about how the fact that you need to be mindful of your own mental health and you went running and you, you communed with nature. We sat here by the, by the Thames now. Um, I mean, you spent half your career outside in, in yeah. you did the country file, you did um, coast to country. Yeah, so I did coast and country, which is, is um, in Wales, ITV Wales, it's outdoors, yeah. Um, there's country file, there's, um, I did a, a two six part series for ITV, walking, one of them walking the Wales coast path, one is the coast path, and one of them walking up Offa's Dyke Path to the border between Wales and England. Um, to see, you know, meeting people on the way, seeing the amazing countryside. And I suppose, apart from being cold quite a lot of the time, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I um, there's something about the outdoors that I just think it make it's sort of restorative. It's um, almost like you're a battery, and you, you know, so, so many things we do in life, you just sort of depleting that battery, and you do need the time to replenish it. And I, you know, sitting down at home and reading a book is good because you it goes up slowly. But almost coming to a place like this, and when the sun comes out like that, it's almost like you put a fast charger in. And it's just restoring everything, and it just. And I suppose when I come out to a place like this, I, sort of, I immediately just, I want to take a deep breath, and I want to. I sort of maybe start breathing a bit slower. Obviously, when you come to places like this, or you go wherever you um, you might be walking, um, so you do it. Your heart's pumping a bit faster, so there's exercise. I mean, I I run. I'm I'm injured at the moment, but I'm swimming quite a bit at the moment, um, and. Running though, I spent a lot of time running. I did four London marathons and I ran a lot around here. And running, running initially when you don't run much is sort of hard. You think, you know, you're out of breath after two minutes. Yeah. But once you get to, it doesn't take long for you just to get to a certain level of fitness where you can keep running. I mean, you go really slowly. I mean, practically just going a little bit faster than walking. But you, um, you can go quite a long way then. You know, you might run 10 minutes and 20 minutes and then half an hour and then an hour. And then suddenly you're doing 10K. And, and that's quite a long way in London. You know, you're getting into, from where I live, you know, you're almost getting to central London or whatever. And uh, if you run along a canal or a river and you feel good, you just feel really good. I remember once when I was really fit training for a marathon, it was the boat race was in sort of March, isn't it? And the marathon was a couple of weeks after. So I was, really, I was in a really good place. I was really fit. And it was tipping it down. I was running along here and the, the, they came into Oxford. I think it was that day or maybe it was a few days before, and they were obviously training on the river, Cambridge and Oxford, the boat race. And um, I saw them getting in from the rain, and like, oh, you know, it was tipping it down. And I was running, and when you're running, you stay warm. And you, I just felt invincible. I mean, I was just literally wearing a T-shirt, trainers and shorts, and I was running, and I just, I was on the outdoors, and I could see the trees, and it was in the spring, so the leaves were starting to come into the trees. Uh, no one was out because it was tipping it down and I just felt invincible. I felt great and running just made me feel brilliant. So yeah, exercise. The other thing when you're outdoors, if you're walking, if you're walking with someone, it's a great place to have a conversation because you can have silences. It's not like sitting over a meal or in a restaurant or in a bar where there are awkward silences and you're sort of looking at each other so you want to fill it. You're walking, 
you might not talk for five minutes, but that's sort of okay because you're walking and you're taking in what's around you. And that's quite a good place to have a, a really meaningful conversation, I suppose, when you're walking because it sort of un unlocks things that maybe you wouldn't do if you were sit face to face with each other. Not that I'm feeling awkward now, <laughs> but you know, you know, like now we're filling the gaps. But if we were walking, we might actually have a 20 seconds, a minute, five minutes where we don't talk. That's sort of okay. So yeah, being outside, nature, um, and the work I do in nature, I, I can I sort of really learn early on that that's actually really important to me. Mm. And having the time to yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, when I walk around here, I'm often with my wife. So it's sort of, I suppose a marriage guidance counselor would say that's marriage time. It's great. We sort of just talk. And it's really, it's really important in a marriage to talk. So yeah, um, times for yourself when you're running. Um, so I'm swimming at the moment and swimming is all indoors in a swimming pool. You know, I wonder whether I need to be getting out into outdoor swimming, but that feels a bit cold for me. But yeah, being outdoors is brilliant. And we're sat here today and you're wearing a very fetching orange hat. Um, obviously, we teamed up with Mind for the Hats On For Mind campaign. And you designed you design the hat yourself, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're jealous because <laughs> you're cold and you need yeah. a hat. <laughs> and you're jealous of the colour. So yeah, um, blue and orange are sort of my favourite colours. And I, I think I went blue last year. I, I just sort of said orange. I have to confess, I had a chat with my wife and we were talking about the colours and the design. And my wife is really good at this sort of thing. So she said, I'd go for that one. And I was like, oh, I'd go for that one then. <laughs> but so she, she's just as much uh, behind it as me. But yeah, orange. Um, I wear a lot of hats when I'm working outdoors. I noticed that. Particularly, I used to cut my hair really short and I just got cold very quickly when I was working. So you wear a hat straight away and it really makes a difference. But hats on for mine, I think it's, a, it's just a really, it's very simple. It's just go outdoors, mind, and me and all the other ambassadors. We know. We know the benefits of being outdoors on your mental health. And so we just want to make it you know, really accessible. A hat is a really good place to start. As I say, when I'm filming most of the year in the winter, it's cold, but a hat does make a real difference. And they say like you lose 80% of your, your body heat from through your head. So you're feeling it now, yeah, you're, you tell me. But so wearing a hat is really important. I mean, I'd add to that, the, the benefits of the great outdoors. I'd add to the fact that the great outdoors in Britain is, is, is it's all of ours. And I often, my filming, um, you're in a national park, you're out on a path in the middle of nowhere, and you see the same sort of people. But I come to London and I see very different people, and I just thought, I suppose my message to them is, it's all of ours, our countryside is all of ours. And during COVID, I think a lot of us did focus on what was around Britain, but um, there are national parks. In cities, there are parks everywhere. There are walks like this, not far from where you live. I mean, I, I wonder if there's, a, there's ever been a study I'm sure everybody must be like 10 minutes at least away from a green space. Even if you're in the middle of London, there's a park somewhere. If you're in the middle of Glasgow or Manchester or whatever, Newcastle. I mean, my daughter was born in Newcastle. There's a, there's a massive bit of common land that's quite close to the centre of Newcastle. It's just people graze their animals on it. You, you're not far from somewhere nice to get out. Um, and, you know, this is testament to it. And finally, what would you say to somebody who was struggling with their mental health. I ask every guest this on the podcast, um, someone who's alone, who's got no one to turn to, what would you say to that, say to that person having been through what you have with, with your son, Ruben? Well, I referred earlier to this family therapy that we did where we met other families. And initially, as you know, with the stigma, we did it all ourselves. We were scared to tell anyone anything. And we, you don't, you don't realize the power of actually sharing things sharing things with people who are struggling like you, but other, just other people as well. So my message would be, 
You're not alone. You've got this. Take small steps, but the first step has got to be to share stuff. Find someone who you can talk to. The first step is sharing, but remember that you've got this and you, you know, over a long period of time, you will be able to deal with this. Um, very important thing, next step is to get a diagnosis. If you don't know what's wrong, you just know something's wrong, get a diagnosis. That was a really important thing for us with our son because you know what you're fighting. It's almost like before we didn't, we knew he was ill, but we didn't know what it was. So you're in a dark room with a monster, you're fighting the monster, but you don't know what it is. As soon as you get the diagnosis, it's like switching the light on. The monster might be massive. It might feel like you're never gonna be able to defeat it, but at least you can see what it is. So yeah, once you've started speaking to someone, get a diagnosis and then start your road to recovery by treatment. Wise words, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm going to have a cup of tea. A warm up. <laughs> yeah, you, need to, you need a hat. That's what you need. Cheers. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Great story to talk about.